This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Well, today, as I mentioned, I want to talk about humanism and the paranormal. Tuesday is Halloween, and it feels just like something that's maybe a little less heavy than the very academic, almost, approach we had to social justice last week and some of the other philosophers and scientists and activists we've had speaking here. And so let's have a lighter talk about ghosts and Bigfoot and things like that. I will give a little note on language and my own personal biases. I don't really believe in any of these things. And I'm not trying to disparage anyone who does. But if that comes across, I apologize in advance. I have my biases, and that's what they are. Uh, But I want to start with why humanists should look at these claims, look at these questions, and what lends humanism as an organizational thing, as a uniting worldview would have to say. So the Amsterdam Declaration is the definition of humanism that our organization, the Beast Humanist Association, has adopted. And it says humanism is rational, among other things. It seeks to use science creatively, not destructively. Humanists believe that solutions to the world's problems lie in human thought rather than divine intervention. Humanism advocates the application of the methods of science and free inquiry to the problems of human welfare. But humanists also believe that the application of science and technology must be tempered by human values. Science gives us the means, but human values must propose the ends. Relatedly, Humanist UK, they say that complementary and alternative treatments should not be funded by the state and no further public money should be spent researching such treatments when evidence is that they don't work any better than placebo. The American Humanist Association has a nice big set of statements. One of their ones is on scientific integrity, and they say claims that are demonstrably false and pseudoscientific, and that some claims are fringe science, whoops, uh, deserve fair review and scientific inquiry, and that some claims are genuinely inconclusive and require further study before judgment is pronounced. And when such claims produce verifiable harms, such conditions must be addressed as a matter of ethical obligation. And I think I'll come back to that one since it's the clearest. The Center for Inquiry is another humanist organization that brings more skepticism in because it was Paul Kurtz's view that the humanist groups he'd founded earlier and the skeptical, the go out and test claims of the paranormal should belong under the same banner. And so his definition for the Center for Inquiry in the US was to oppose and supplant mythological narratives of the past and the dogmas of the present. The world needs an institution devoted to promoting science, reason, freedom of inquiry, and humanist values. And he called the Center for Inquiry that institution in no humble terms. So humanism is a worldview based on science, among other things. There's also compassion uh, and inspiration or appreciation of art. What the American Humanist Association definition here talks about is that if someone makes a claim, we should approach it with an open mind and an open heart, but also apply the critical tools of science to it and hold it to a high regard. As Carl Sagan 
has said extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So if someone claims that there is something that's very much outside the understanding we have of the world, they need to provide a level of proof that meets that. If someone tells me there's someone in the hallway in a wheelchair, that's not too extraordinary of a claim. It's pretty believable. So maybe just a little picture or even just a secondhand account would be enough. But if someone tells me there's a leprechaun in the hallway, I'm going to require a little bit more proof than even like a blurry photo. These, this approach to humanism dates back to the first humanist manifestos. The 1933 Humanist Manifesto explicitly rejected dualism and the idea of mind-body. It also um, said that humanism asserts that the nature, I didn't want to put tens, tons of text on my slide, so that's the most text you'll see up there, and it's mostly because it's a quote. So in 1933, they said, humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values. Obviously, humanism does not deny the possibility of realities as yet undiscovered, but it does insist that the way to determine the existence and value of any and all realities is by means of intelligent inquiry and the assessment of their relation to human needs. Religion must formulate its hopes and plans in light of the scientific spirit and method. The first humanist manifesto was much more inclusive of the word religion. They would talk about religious humanism as sort of a secular religion. And then they abolished the word religion out of there because it just became unwieldy. But the, again, the idea was if claims are made, we should approach them with that open mind. And again, there was another line in the 1933 manifesto that said, the time has passed for theism, deism, modernism, and several varieties of new thought. So some of the new agey spiritualities that were coming out in the 1930s, I guess they're not that new now, uh, were already being rejected as lacking evidence or lacking a coherent under explanation of the world. The 1972 manifesto then also said, there's no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. We continue to exist in our progeny and in the way that our lives have influenced others in our culture. So in 1972, the Humanist Manifesto said there's no life after death, which mostly rules out the possibility of ghosts, unless ghosts are something other than dead people. But let's talk about Halloween and where it comes from, because I think one of the things humanism can try to do is approach holidays that we celebrate culturally and say, we can still appreciate these values as cultural expressions, but we should critically look at their history, where they come from, discard the bits that don't make sense anymore, maybe adapt them. Uh, this photo is from Edinburgh at what's called the uh, Beltane Fire Society's Samhain uh, Fire Festival. And it happens on October 31st. And I wanted to use one of my own photos from that night because we actually were in Edinburgh in 2014 on October 31st. And this is an amazing festival to be at because people dress up and parade down the streets carrying fire and try and chase away the demons that are supposedly coming into our reality at this festival. And so it's just a really cool experience. But my photos didn't turn out because it was dark and it's really hard on a phone to get photos like that, so I stole this from the internet. And I use that because, as far as I could tell in a very quick research on Wikipedia, Halloween 
mostly as we celebrate it comes from Celtic Gaelic folk festivals that this is based on. So this is a reimagination that we've that people in Scotland have recreated. It's not that it was necessarily continuous, but it's sort of neo-paganism. So in Scotland and across the UK, the Celtic tribes would celebrate Sahuin, which was Old Irish for summer's end. And it basically marked the end of the harvest and a beginning of winter. So most festivals and celebrations will have probably all noticed tend to be marked around celestial events, maybe the equinox, the solstice, there's summer festivals, Christmas and New Year's are around the winter solstice. They're not always perfect because calendars changed and empires use different calendars, but this festival mostly falls around the time when it goes from warm to cold and dark. And especially in Scotland, it's getting dark and cold. So the idea here was at this time of year, the boundary between our world and the spiritual world, the other world, becomes thin. And so spirits and fairies are passing into our world, and you need to maybe scare them off with fire, literally. They weren't all necessarily evil, but they could have been mischievous and other things like that. And so they started holding parades and doing fire things. Later, this evolved into people going house to house in disguise, reciting verses for food in the 16th century. Basically, festivals tend to evolve, and so people would be dressing up in late medieval, it's the 16th century, almost the scientific revolution. Uh, people would be dressing up in demon costumes, trying to scare their neighbors or doing tricks or treats. And it evolved essentially from there. When Christianity really began to influence November 1st is All Saints Day, also known as All Hallows Day. And so the name All Hallows Eve started to be applied to these pagan festivals that were still happening because Christianity, despite its attempts to quash out local customs and traditions, often found it was much easier to sort of just incorporate them and go, all right, you keep doing your thing, but it's really your thing for Jesus. So All Hallows Eve became the nickname, which obviously has been contracted to Halloween. And that's why sometimes there's the apostrophe there, but language evolves. And my preference as a stylist and a writer is to always use fewer characters because we live in the age of Twitter. So that's why I don't put dots in BC. It's just BC. That's the acronym. It's not B.C. That's a waste of space. That's a different talk that no one wants to hear. <laughs> uh, so this festival moved its way into North America with waves of Scottish and Irish immigration. And by the 19th century, you had people starting to do these trick-or-treating festivals in Canada and the US. But it was still mostly a quasi-pagan or spiritual holiday. And it was opposed by fundamentalists, the Puritans, who in England didn't like it because it was celebrating demons. And it was opposed in North America by the same Puritans, and it has still been, and it's still called out by fundamentalists of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Interesting, I wanted to pull a couple quotes off the Wikipedia article, because that's really how I did the research for this. There's a Jewish scholar, Alfred Kolach, who has said Halloween is not permitted because it violates Leviticus 18.3, uh, which forbids Jews from partaking in Gentile customs. I don't have the full Bible in front of me, but you can find Jewish scholars who think Halloween is an affront to God. And 
you can also find uh, Muslim Sheik Idris Palmer, who said participation in Halloween is worse than participating in Christmas or Easter. <laughs> and this is because it's more sinful than congratulating the Christians for the prostration of the, to the crucifix. So I think because Halloween involves worshiping demons and Jesus was a prophet in Islam, he just wasn't the final prophet. So celebrating those is okay as long as you still have Muhammad as the highest prophet. So Christmas and Easter can fit within, I guess, a Islamic worldview, but Halloween is just devil worship, it's Satanism. Again, we have had church, we have had Satanists speak to us and they're super nice people. So that's where Halloween comes from. As you know, today it's about like teenager, teenagers and college students dressing slutty and getting drunk and kids dressing adorable and asking for candy at malls now because when I grew up in Southern Alberta, I was in rural area and we'd have to get driven from house to house, which meant you got lots of candy because you only made it to six houses, but that was fun. I don't have any pictures of me on Halloween. I realized I should have put that up because that would be good. I was never that scary. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, what are the perceptions. I always like polls and I always like stats. And I think every talk I've ever done has had a poll in it, at least here. And so Insights West, and one of the reasons I reached out to Insights West last year to, do, to work with us to do a poll is because they put out polls like this on their own and they've asked about creationism. But this is one they just did uh, a couple weeks ago, I believe, actually. Uh, they polled 1,001 Canadians, which means these numbers are plus or minus about 3%. And they asked a number of things. They asked, how do you celebrate Halloween? But I was most interested in this. What are your beliefs in the paranormal? And we find something like 5 to 7% of Canadians believe in zombies. Well, there's this thing called the like lizard quotient of polls, where you get upwards of 5% of people who will just answer absurd things on polls, maybe just to screw with the pollster or maybe 7% of Canadians believe in zombies. Interestingly, fewer British Columbians do. Actually, what I found really interesting in this poll is British Columbians are more skeptical of free one or more cynical or less believing in the supernatural than Canadians writ large, which goes a little bit against the kooky, left coast, new agey spiritualism that people have in mind. And this is universal. So life after death, most Canadians do believe in it, but in BC, it's almost 50-50. And that's the strongest paranormal belief, if you can call that paranormal. The devil is pretty unpopular here, only 25%, and it goes up from there. The most, I won't say credulous, but the highest numbers are in Atlantic Canada, where 66% of people believe in ghosts and 61% of people believe in the devil. In Quebec, 57% of people believe in angels, ghosts, and demons. Uh, men tend to have slightly lower numbers than women. The younger demographic tend to believe more in ghosts, demons, and spirits than older demographics, interestingly. And some of these are within margin of error, so it's a little bit hard to parse out. But I found some of that interesting. I think there's a correlation between the more religious provinces and belief in all of these except maybe zombies. Uh, so if you're a religious person, most religions in Canada, the big ones, believe in Satan. They believe in angels and life after death. Ghosts are maybe in there. Insights West also did a similar thing for 
April Fools in 2015 uh, about conspiracy theories. And in this one, they just asked people in BC and Alberta. So Insights West has been growing as a pollster, and they used to just do BC and BC and Alberta polls, and now they're doing Canada-wide. And so in 2015, they asked uh, Albertans and British Columbians, 800 British Columbians, so plus or minus 3%, 3.5% on here, and 500 Br Albertans, so plus or minus 4%. So if these are within seven points, they're basically effectively the same. But overall, it looks like British Columbians are more skeptical than Albertans, which again, I think ties to the correlation with religion. Alberta tends to be a little bit more religious than BC, although it's not as religious as people tend to think. It's just very polarized. There's just very extreme religion there as opposed to like low-level Anglicanism. So I didn't actually read the JFK papers before this or read any reporting on it because I think so much came out that it's going to need like a week for good journalists to distill and I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole to call it that. But I guess, yeah, that is the one thing British Columbians were at 35% believing JFK assassination was a conspiracy versus 32% of Albertans. But otherwise, across the board, like global warming, especially 12% of British Columbians thought that was a hoax versus 26% of Albertans. And I think there's a partisan lens to that that we could say. Interestingly, Ogopogo, a British Columbian legend, is still 15 and 16% in Alberta and BC, respectively. You would expect British Columbians to maybe be more believing in Ogopogo since it's our mythical monster. Yeah, but so many but of birds go to the Okanagan. That's true. Oh, uh, <laughs> but otherwise, across the board, lunar landings being a hoax, 7% of British Columbians and 10% of Albertans. That is actually an interesting one because I just watched uh, Adam Ruins Everything where they talk about the moon landings. And the, one of the best ways we can know the moon landings weren't faked is if you look at the pictures, all of the shadows are parallel. And they did not have the lighting technology to create a source that could create parallel shadows. So you need a light source that is tens of millions of kilometers away, like the sun, to actually make a photo like that. They didn't have the tech in. It would have cost more to fake it than to actually fly to the moon. And so the other one I'll talk about here is Bigfoot. 21% of Albertans and 20% of British Columbians think he's real. Uh, when you dig into the data on this, Metro Vancouver is actually less likely to believe than the rest of BC in many of these things, specifically UFOs, the JFK assassination hoax, the Diana assassination, the cancer cure, and Bigfoot. I would have actually expected Metro Vancouver residents to be a bit more skeptical that uh, the cure for cancer is being withheld but I guess it's Vancouver Island where that really takes off relative. None of them were actually that high. So yeah, BC, slightly more skeptical than Alberta. BC, slightly more skeptical than all of Canada. So let's talk about a few specific paranormal aspects and ones that I th think are more relevant to BC. And I'll start with the Sasquatch. Most cultures around the world, as far as my reading on Wikipedia again can tell, have some kind of mythical, giant, human-like creature in them that wanders around. Folklore around the world has similar accounts. The Sasquatch Bigfoot myth idea is, very, is the most common in the world in the Pacific Northwest. It's first described in its modern form here in BC and in Washington State. 
And interestingly, it comes from an amalgamation of different indigenous myths. So a lot of the different tribes here, some had more, there's this spirit that's this giant man in the woods, and others had a more literal belief. Some had a very mischievous, cruel, or mean monster that lived in the woods, like warn your children if you go out in the woods or, and say its name, it will get you. Perhaps as a way to make sure kids didn't run off into the woods alone, which are pretty treacherous in BC if you don't know what you're doing. And others had a more friendly kind of creature. The word Sasquatch actually comes from an Anglicanized word from the Halcomelum word Sasquets. I don't always know how to pronounce those, so hopefully I didn't butcher that. Uh, one of the first reports comes from uh, Chief Michel of the Inklamkatma people of Lytton, who told a story in 1898. And he said there's this creature uh, who is called the benign-faced one who would wander in the woods. And so there were a lot of reports around that time as settlers were moving in, as the English were moving in, and trying to interface with the indigenous people and find out what are they talking about. There's similar stories in northwestern Washington of semiques. Uh, some of these were dangerous, as I said. Most of the stories were initially compiled by us reporter, I guess, named J.W. Burns. And he, in the 20s and then again in the 40s, tried to compile these accounts from different tribes and different nations. And he's the one who essentially started just calling them all Sasquatch. He took one of the words and went, this applies to all of these different myths. And it's interesting to me in the sort of era of truth and reconciliation to see how like one white man basically went, oh, all of these different stories are basically the same story, so I'll just give it one word, and now we're going to stick with that word for 100 years. Seems standard for how we treated indigenous people in this area where it is a very diverse area. And so his words, Sasquatch in the newspaper editorials that went around really popularized it. And any time these kind of stories come up in the media, there tends to be a spike in reports as people go, oh, I think I saw that thing that it was talked about recently. Uh, this, these numbers here are from the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, which as far as I can tell is the largest tracking website of reports. And their data agrees with most other reports that a third of all sightings of Bigfoot type creatures, this is a man in a monkey suit, is we're pretty all confident, but it is the most famous, I think, hoax of it. Uh, they report 130 sightings in BC versus 39 in Alberta, and, you know, fewer in the rest of the country. This is a generalized density of where the sightings are. So it's all BC and Washington. They're starting to be more out east as the story is uh, traveled and people are reporting sightings in the forests around Michigan and things like that in southern Ontario. It's also where people live. The one other thing I'll say about BFRO, BFRO, is you can go onto their website here and see all the reports and accounts. And I haven't gone through all of them, so there might be very credible reports on there. But what I tend to find is they do have a rating system of them, like class A are you saw it. Class B are you heard it, and Class C are like someone told you they heard it type reportings. A lot of them tend to be Class B and 
they are, oh, I was sleeping in my tent and I heard a growling that couldn't have been a bear in the woods near me. And I've spent a reasonable amount of time camping or in the woods with people who are less honest, like my dad, and like to play up these kind of stories. And there are a lot of weird sounds in the woods. So I won't say that Bigfoot definitely doesn't exist. There are some explanations that it could be a extinct, a possibly extinct uh, giant humanoid Neanderthal type species. And then there are a few occasional um, tracks and things, but a lot of those seem to have been faked. So I personally don't believe. Uh, Ogopogo is the mythical creature of Lake Okanagan that many of you are probably familiar with. It's, the, it's estimated to be 40 to 50 foot long, serpent-like creature. It's hard to know if it's friendly or malicious right now. There's actually a really great investigation on Ogopogo from 2006 by Benjamin Radford and Joe Nickel. I think it was in Skeptical Inquirer, and you can read it there. They do account, they do explain how Ogopogo essentially came from many of the First Nations, or one of the local First Nations myths, the Netaka people, who had this belief in a lake demon or something. And if you wanted to cross the Okanagan Lake to get to one of these small islands there, you had to offer something to Netaka, or else it would take you down, and it would take your ship down and murder you because you hadn't appeased it. And it was never clear how much they believed in a literal beast, or if it was more, because a lot of indigenous stories are less literal than the way we approach them from a sort of Western lens. It's not that this was written down as historical fact. It was more of an oral tradition of this is how we understand the world. It's maybe not exactly literally like this, but if you do these things, you won't get in trouble. So they didn't call for human sacrifice, but you would throw a chicken and drown a chicken in the lake, which seems a little cruel, but most cultures have a sacrifice, sacrificial history, unfortunately. When settlers started coming to the land, they heard about this story and I think applied the more biblical beast lens to it. And that's where the modern version, I think, of Ogopogo comes from. And that's why Ogopogo looks like Nessie and this serpent monster that comes from underwater because I think that's been described in the more King James-y type Bibles that are very big on fantastical beasts. And when you add to that, around the same time, there was the big Victorian interest in dinosaurs and the fossils. They said, oh, maybe it's just a dinosaur floating around in the lake. And so around the turn of the 19th, early 20th century, you start getting a renewed or an initial set of sightings from settlers in the area, some taking grainy photos like this, and that's where the myth starts coming, and that's where the myth becomes, oh, there's an actual beast in the lake. And those have somewhat died down as cameras, I think, have gotten better. And now Ogopogo is mostly just the mascot of the Okanagan. And most of the explanations, so there's no one explanation for every photo of Ogopogo. The biggest one tends to be that it's a very weird lake. So it's a very deep lake. And that means that our normal understanding of how waves flow, like when we look out at the Pacific Ocean, waves come in very linearly. They are very normal. Because of the way this lake is very deep and the winds can come at different directions, you can get crisscrossing waves that make big, dark parts. 
There's also a lot of driftwood in there that can float in, in lines that can look like this. And there's one video that shows it kind of flowing and it's actually like three otters in a line. It's not to say again that every thing is a hoax or even a well-intentioned misunderstanding, but there are, I th personally think, pretty good explanations for each of the photos or if there isn't, it's not, this doesn't convince me that there's a monster under the o Lake Okanagan. It's not to say I'd go swimming in that lake, it's deep and cold and I'm not a good swimmer, but that's Yoga Pogo. I don't have a lot to say on the next two, which are UFOs and ghosts. What I do want to say is BC has our own UFO reporting website, UFO BC. I don't have the link here, but if anyone wants it, I can dig it up later and we can read through some of the sighting reports. What's fantastic about them though is they've done a lot of the historical work. So I love this photo so much. So this photo was taken in 1937 and it shows this nifty little UFO over Vancouver City Hall, which was probably fairly new at that time. And it's kind of indicative of a lot of UFO photos where anyone who's taking camera or pictures know you can get little distortions on your lens if a piece of dust flies in front. And I don't know if that's what this is or if there was something else going on. Maybe it was a UFO visiting Vancouver. But it's just a really cool photo. It's, and the like contrast of it, I think, especially makes it very Art Deco. Um, the other one thing, I want to show a little video. Public relations point of view, it was bottom of the ninth. Game all tied up, bases loaded, and crack. A grand slam right out of the park. But the audience started pointing not at where the ball was going, but to that bright light hovering in the night sky. And as often happens when strange things are seen over Vancouver, people start calling the H.R. McMillan Space Center to see if they knew what was going on. Could have been an airplane taking off in YVR, gas leak somewhere, some other diff different thing. In fact, this wasn't the first sighting of the UFO. It had been seen at a smartphones, which of course went viral on the internet and social media sites worldwide. Those first shaky images of the UFO had over 100,000 views on YouTube. And that was before last night's reappearance. Was it a bird? Was it a plane? Nope, it was a hoax. It's a radio-controlled helicopter with a lid on it that looks like our planetarium theater. That's all? That's it. The genesis of this publicity stunt was a public service announcement showing a computer-generated flying saucer arriving over Kitts Point, while at the same time the existing H.R. McMillan Space Center launches and shoots off into the cosmos, making room for the brand new half-million-dollar theater upgrade. But it quickly dawned on everyone, why stop there? So the idea of flying a drone UFO around Vancouver area came up pretty quickly. Then late this afternoon, the unidentified flying object became the identified one, as the creators of this publicity stunt displayed the hardware that captured so much international attention. We put lights all on, uh, on the outside and on the inside so that when it's up in the air at night, you can, uh, you can get a sense of, you know, it looking like a sort of bright light in the sky sort of floating and hovering. There are people out there who probably even after today will still believe that it was an actual UFO. Yes, another reason for the planetarium to come clean is to quash what will inevitably be the conspiracy theorist out there, who despite seeing this will undoubtedly raise the question, was the idea of a marketing scheme merely a cover for what was actually a real extraterrestrial sighting? Ted Trenet, Global News.
obviously not every sighting is so obviously and maliciously a hoax. So that's mostly what I can say about UFO. I mean, the reports in BC aren't unique relative to the world. So you get the same level of things that are obvious hoax. Two, unexplained credible, unexplained reports. And it gets complicated. As far as I can tell, there's not consistent demonstrable evidence. As far as I understand the universe, it's very difficult to travel between stars. They're very far apart, and we don't know of any technology. That's not to say there isn't any out there. But for me, that doesn't add up to enough. Similarly, with uh, ghosts, the sightings tend to be very similar to sightings anywhere around the world. It tends to be you're in a very creepy old building that creaks and makes a lot of weird sounds, and probably there was a murder in. Uh, this photo comes from the Vancouver and Interior Paranormal Society. They had a nice profile in, I think it was the Capilano University newspaper or something on the North Shore, just talking to some of their people. And there was like six or seven photos that they said showed ghosts. And this was the most convincing to me. And even it is a weird, they're, so they're using some kind of special camera here that takes in red light. And there's maybe a figure in the background, but there's clearly a lot going on in this photo that suggests it's not uh, taking a very clear picture of the world. Um, the rest of them look like just dark rooms, honestly. And maybe I was missing it. Maybe I just didn't see what they were trying to get across. I think what's unique about Ghosts in BC is how many ghost stories we film here. So the entire series of the X-Files was filmed here. Supernatural is filmed here. And a lot of other films are here because we just have both a very uh, film industry friendly government and such a photogenic province that, and tons of great locations, and also lots of just like creepy mix of things. So you can have some really dark woods where you can have weird things happen. You have old buildings. I found one list of haunted places in BC. It didn't mention uh, St. Paul's. Basically, any old building is con generally considered ha uh, haunted. Riverview Hospital in Coquitlam that was built in 1913 but abandoned in 1983. Uh, we have several ghost towns around BC, Barkerville being probably the most famous. It's currently a tourist attraction, but there's also Kitsalt is an interesting one that's up on the north coast. It wasn't listed as having any reported haunting activity, but this was a town established in 1979 for a molybdenum mine, and they brought in a couple thousand people, but the price of molybdenum crashed within a couple years, and the town was evacuated in 1982. So the town existed for three years, and now I guess it's just a very creepy place that looks like the post-apocalyptic wasteland because there's no one there, but it's all still relatively new. Uh, another ghost town is Parkhurst just outside Whistler on the north shore of Green Lake, which closed with a logging decline in the 1950s. Supposedly the Stave Falls, the Stave Falls Powerhouse in Mission is haunted. It's a really cool hydroelectric dam that was built in 1903. And one other place listed was the Tranquil Sanatorium in Kamloops. Basically any hospital slash mental health institution of the past. This one was built in 1907 to treat tuberculosis and became an uh, institution for the mentally ill in 1958, closing in 1983. So that 
the stigma around mental illness, especially in those eras, combined with an older building, make it just doesn't feel right. And then that's not to say there aren't ghosts there, but it gives off a creepy vibe. And then across Vancouver, you have a lot of creaky old buildings that just feel, feel weird. But again, maybe there are ghosts. I just haven't seen it. But to bring it back to some of those humanist statements, what they kind of emphasize for me is we shouldn't be jerks about it unless there's a demonstrable harm. That's sort of why I think a lot of humanists get very agitated about religion is because we can very easily see in more culty religions the harm it can cause, the sex abuse scandals of the Catholic Church and just the um, suppression of critical thinking. There's a website called whatstheharm.net that looks at different pseudosciences and says, what's the toll? What's, and tries to calculate how many people have been harmed. So on acupuncture, you can find stories of people who get infected with dirty needles or become paralyzed because they do it wrong and it goes too deep. On chiropractic, you can find stories of babies who've died because they perform pediatric chiropractic. On ghosts, there are 58 stories. A number of them was, uh, come around court cases where someone, there's a famous court case in the US from, I think it's like 70 years old now, but someone knew a place was haunted, didn't disclose that to the new buyer, and then the buyer tried to resell it but found out it was haunted and then had lost value, so they sued for like failing to disclose and the court upheld that. And this has actually happened multiple times. So we have a lawyer in the room and he could tell us why he thinks that's ridiculous, but uh, there are cases, a number of cases where hauntings have like destroyed property value and that's one of the biggest. There's also a couple really tragic cases where someone thinks they hear a ghost and they fire a firearm and end up killing a partner or a spouse or a visitor. Uh, one, there's also a couple cases of people with what I would say is very likely mental illness who have an episode or something and end up harming another human being. This is a good reason not to have firearms, I think, personally, because these things can But again, 58 when I think what's the harm would count hundreds to thousands of people on most of the other categories. So, and that's by ghosts. Most of the other things I talked about, I don't know if anyone's been harmed by believing in the Sasquatch or by believing in the Ogopogo. The worst, I guess what the harm would be there is you killed a few animals crossing the lake, which is probably inappropriate, but. One of the things though, I think for me is that uh, anti-critical thinking can have knock-on effects and there are more harmful ends to this. There was just on Friday this story, so I'm gonna play the video from it, uh, of this woman, Sarah Edmondson, who joined something called the Executive Success Program, and that's nicknamed ESP. So she's not talking about extrasensory perception, the idea that you can read minds or travel with psychic abilities, but it's a program for women. She'll explain it in the video. At university in Montreal, came back here and was 27 when I heard about ESP. DOS was a group that I was recruited into by who has become one of my closest friends in the company and somebody who um, I went to for all of my issues or things that I wanted to work through. She was like my therapist for the lack of, we didn't use that word in ESP, but she was the person I went to 
if I was struggling with something. First she told me it was a women's group, an international women's group, uh, a secret society similar to the Freemasons that would be totally underground and a group of women working together to be a force for good in the world. Taught us a lot of wonderful things and I gained a lot, but insidiously within those truths were a number of other indoctrinations which I now no longer agree with. That women are weak, we have no character, men have all the character, we need to learn character, we have no discipline, we're emotional, which is true, and that emotion drives us and takes us off our track when we're committed to something. That's why we bail on things, we're flaky. So women have to learn how to humiliate themselves, each other. And that's what DOS was. First step was a vow of obedience to And I said, obedience for what? Like you're gonna get me to rob a bank? And she says, no, no, of course not. This is for you and your growth. And this is all for you to really commit. And she's like, it's more like a heightened coaching relationship, Sarah. It's like, I'm your mentor, but except you call me master and you're my slave. And the final step was what she said and explained to me would be a tattoo. And it was the most, she said, getting her tattoo was the most profound experience of her life. The tattoo was something I was very not okay with. And she said to me she'd work through my issues around it, even though I didn't like it. And I trusted her that I somehow needed this. And I went along with it. March 9th, I flew into Albany early. I got my childcare taken care of. I showed up at the house at around 4 o'clock. And I think I was the first one. And she brought me up to her guest bedroom where I'd stayed before. I was familiar with her home. And she told me to take off all my clothes and put on a blindfold. I sat there for about 20 minutes, scared, excited, weirded out. Something was going to happen. I didn't know what. Um, other women were brought into the different rooms. We didn't know who the other women in our team were. And this was her way of introducing us. And she brought us all down individually blindfolded and naked, sat us in a semicircle on a sheepskin rug with candles in her foyer living room area, and then told us to take off the blindfold. And I looked around at my friends from ESP seeing Buck naked for the first time in home. And all of us going, oh my God, what are we doing? And we were brought into the guest room, asked to take off her clothes again. And she drew a stencil on our body of a symbol, which told me was a sign for the four elements. There's a line, that's the horizon, this little squiggles the water, this is a mountain. She lied to me. I found out later what the symbol meant, and that the symbol was a combination of two people's initials. It's the first person I was kneeling on her legs with another friend of mine um, who is also out since then and may also be willing to talk to you. And we were looking at each other. We had, at the beginning, we had masks on, like surgical masks, because the smell of uh, flesh was so strong and like burnt flesh. And we looked at each other, and I remember looking at her, and it was, we were both weeping. It was like, this is uh, something out of a horror movie. And we were shaking, and the woman on the table, I'll leave her anonymous for her sake, even though she's still in and thinks it's great. Um, she was, squealing like a like a pig. She was squealing like an animal being branded. And I, we were in a, we were in shock. I think I was I think my shock started there. And um I yeah pulled me aside and say, you know, you, you gotta you gotta do better than this. And I made a commitment at that point I said I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do it because I said I was gonna do it. 
even though everything in my body said, get out, get out of here. If you couldn't read it there, that NXIVM is supposedly the umbrella group of the ESP she was talking about. So the harm for me is when a sort of belief in these paranormal can expand to other harmful beliefs. So that kind of dangerous cult, which is very extreme, obviously. But if you follow these kind of groups or these paranormal groups, they have conferences, they go and have discussions. And at these conferences, one uncritical belief will t connect to others. And so you'll have conspiracy conference where they will talk about UFOs, ghosts, but then they'll talk about vaccines causing autism. They'll talk about chemtrails being a government mind control. And you get people like Alex Jones whispering in the president's ear, talking about how, what's his thing? Fluoride is churning toads gay and this is a like way to convert the American people into subservient, feminized gay people. And it's, all, and it's funny, it sounds funny because it's ridiculous, but it was, we'll, we'll hold it, we'll hold the comments till the end, please. But yeah, it sound, and he's got the Sandy Hook truthers, I think you're trying to pull out where that government murdered children to try to push through gun control that didn't even happen. And this guy should be a joke. He should be a joke, but he's increasingly taken seriously, which is troubling and dangerous. And that's where, for me, the humanist has to speak out because it's one thing I'm not, again, trying to belittle anyone who believes in Sasquatch or UFOs or Bigfoot or the Ogopogo. And I think there is an importance to understanding why people believe different things. But we do need to promote critical thinking. We do need to promote the scientific method and that as an approach to understanding the world. And I think that rejects most of these things. But the issue is when those stories go beyond stories and into dangerous beliefs. So I'll finish with a quote actually from Radford's piece on Ogopogo, since I think it ties together some of these thoughts and how myths can become more. He says, as, as with Netika, and it's interesting, he uses the indigenous spelling in his article, but he also calls them Indian people, which I feel like he could have tried just a little bit harder, but no one's perfect. As with Netika, the real question is not what Ogopogo means in some absolute or biological sense, but what Ogopogo means to the culture and age embracing it. The First Nations people have Netika, the cryptozoologists and eyewitnesses have Ogopogo, and the tourists in Ogun Valley children now have Ogi. Netika and Ogopogo are fundamentally amorphous, while Ogi, with Ogi we finally have captured the beast in its cultural, if not its actual form. The creature's fame began with stories and songs of its exploits. Years later, those stories crystallized into and influenced modern reports of an actual beast. Soon after that, stories and songs about the creature began to spread once again. Until and unless the beast is actually captured or identified, Ogopogo will surely live on part god, part demon, and part chameleon. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much. I don't have a question, but um I read an article recently um, that was conducted at CERN um, at the Large Hadron Collider where they, um, they basically disproved that ghosts can exist because of uh, showing that the energy levels required for ghosts to exist would be detectable um, and they didn't find it. So I think it's, uh, it's well worth a read 
um, just look up Ghosts Don't Exist Large Hadron Collider, you'll find it. It's, it's, a, it's a good article. You didn't say anything about holy ghosts, <laughs> which seems to be quite widespread. Perhaps you could comment on that. <laughs> I guess it depends on which edition of the Bible you're reading and how it describes it, but it looks, at least in BC, with how little belief there is in other paranormal sort of things, I can't imagine it's very widespread outside of devout Catholics. I don't believe in Holy Ghosts, in a literal sense. You certainly should have something about Holy Ghosts. Come on, Glenn. Unholy Ghosts. Oh, unholy. Yeah. Well, the new editions now just call it the Holy Spirit, because the ghost was an old Shakespearean term, right, of King James Version. Uh, I think that uh, the, all the books and stuff that you read in this area, particularly if you have somewhat of a scientific bent and you're looking to uh, understand competing hypotheses, uh, I prefer that approach rather than saying, that's a lie, and I'm speaking the truth. I talk, talk about the weight of evidence leans this way heavily or lightly, and the weight of evidence for the other hypothesis is, uh, can be uh, undermined quite easily. The evidence is weak. I think that there were two things that happened in my academic career that turned me into a skeptic even before I left the church. And one was that I was a history major in college with a philosophy major, minor, and one of the things that impressed me was that when you read a book on history, which was supposed to be the truth, the first thing they taught us to do was understand who the author was, what university they were writing for, and who was their publisher. Because that would determine how the narrative eventually came out. And I'm thinking, history? That's truth. No, no. All you have to do is study the historiography, say like the Civil War, or anything else, you realize that the context totally determines how it's interpreted. Then you get into psychology, and then you realize that a lot of people's beliefs are motivated by their rewards. And so I noticed in your graph up there of what we believe, that the two most prevalent of these weak hypotheses is angels and eternal life. They have the most reward regardless of how you interpret it. The others, hell and vampires and zombies, which could have the most harm, have the lowest ratings. So in your own research, Ian, do you find, how do you interpret context or you just approach it as a scientist from evidence, or do you actually look at context? Who is writing this for what reason? First, I'll say you're totally right. In the books, I think you mentioned to me The Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan. I should have mentioned that if anyone wants a very well-written book on how to approach claims. Carl Sagan is compassionate. He was a humanist. He was a skeptic. He was a fantastic author. The other person I'll mention is Daniel Loxton, who's a illustrator and editor of Junior Skeptic magazine. And he lives in Victoria, and I recommend it because he's a British Columbian boy. Uh, he's written some good things about cryptozoology and things like that, and has a generally humanistic outlook as well. 
I think context is absolutely important, as you're saying. I think a good scientist approaches things with context because to just look at one set of data, you can only interpret it if you understand how it was measured, how it was taken, where it comes from, or else how are you going to formulate hypothesis that can try and understand it. When we're looking at history, obviously books are written by the victors, and then sometimes they're rewritten by the aggrieved party. This happened in the South. This is why they put up Confederate monuments to try to rewrite history, especially when the further marginalized, the African Americans, were trying to demand some basic civil liberties. They said, well, you, it was the civil rights era when most of these Confederate monuments went up. And they said, well, just as a reminder of your place, we're going to put up these monuments now. And so understanding that context is always important. In terms of uh, Sasquatch, that's why I wanted to talk about the different indigenous myths. Because I think that provides a very interesting, that was something I learned in reading about this, is how all of these myths got bastardized into one thing. And looking at that in context suggests, well, maybe there isn't one Bigfoot. Maybe there's multiple different monsters. Or maybe these different stories inform one preconceived notion of some Brit who wanted to sell newspapers. So I don't disagree. <laughs> I am not a monster. When you, uh, that's what's going to happen once they discover these Bigfoots. They're going to start, you know, infiltrating into our society and complaining about how they're being treated and so on. I just, uh, on the, U, uh, the UFO thing, my first and obvious question was, uh, are you really an alien? You're trying to convince us that you haven't already infiltrated our society? But uh, <clears throat> I wanted to, to point out the given aspect of many of these claims. Uh, they're always treated like a given. The paranoia, paranormal. The afterlife. Uh, everything's treated like that as though it does exist. And, and when you take something like, for instance, the word God as a given without any explanation, then you're starting on what they call a house of sand. Um, <clears throat> Is there a way to, I, I think that's the thing that needs to be combated the most is to start understanding that these things aren't a given. Now, I was asked by a religious guy the other day, he said, do you believe that dogs have a soul? And I had to explain to him that the soul is a religious concept and I don't believe in that whatsoever. So uh, the point here is being more skeptical <clears throat> excuse me, more skeptical instead of trying to walk the middle ground being more skeptical is important in order to to take away the given aspect of all of these different things start changing our language so it's not the afterlife but a, a belief in some sort of afterlife do you do you have have you encountered that do you have any do you work toward that in any way i don't know that I have thought of it exactly in that way or that I'm actively trying to change language, and that's very tough. What that makes me think about is the idea of the burden of proof. And the initial approach we all tend to take is, well, I've said something, disprove me. But realistically, when someone puts forward a hypothesis or an idea, and it's more up to you to show that that's the case, 
than for someone to disprove it, because disproving is harder than just actually demonstrating. So we could get deeply into philosophy of science, and that's sort of the first level. You could, that's verificationism of the early 19th century or 20th century, and then there was falsification. But falsification is a very high bar, and now there's a larger understanding about the process of science. But at the very first order level, I think that idea of burden of proof and saying if someone brings forward a claim, they need to bring forward some evidence of it. And that's what I was talking about, the Carl Sagan idea of apportioning belief to the evidence or extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So those all tie together, if that makes sense. I don't think we're ever going to change people's language actively. People are very resistant to that. Language is something innate. And when you do believe something, you do talk about it as though it's the way things are. And that happens in politics. That happens in claims of the paranormal. That talks happens in everything. It's just natural. It's easier. That's not to say it should, should be easy, but getting people to talk different is not going to happen, in my view, easily. Good morning, Ian. Uh, thanks for, for the presentation. Um, knowing you were going to do this, I, I went on Vancouver meetups and I had a look. Did, this is some empirical evidence, okay. So if you look on Vancouver meetups in the category of beliefs, which they put us in, we could whatever, there's 101 meetup groups. Uh, in terms of that, uh, eight, eight are, are atheist, agnostic, or science, so about one-twelfth are there. Uh, as you're aware, the, the vast majority are New Age, healing, um, and all kinds like that. There are nine paranormal, nine, so there's more paranormal meeting meetup groups in Vancouver than there is atheists and scientific. And I can't remember if it's VIP, the one, the one of the one that's more prominent, but they have things on their site like uh, they're upset with the public who laugh at them or whatever. Um, they've, they've got proof of a child's hand proof on a ceiling. Uh, they've got proof in Chilliwack of a three-legged stool moving on its own. Somehow, it's kind of interesting. What do we live in? A world where everybody has a camera, right? They didn't get this on TV. I mean, they didn't get this on a phone camera, but there were enough of them there to see it. How, how's that for coincidence? So, I mean, it's kind of interesting that as, as much as we are progressing in Canada, BC, toward humanism and, uh, and uh, secularism, there's, you know, still numbers out there. Uh, that are quite large or whatever. The other thing about this, you were talking about harm. Uh, I just got a copy of, the, of my magazine, The Skeptic, and on the front cover, I mean, to me this is pretty bad when you have to write an article basically disproving that aliens didn't help people build our monuments and our buildings. I mean, when such a reputable magazine has to, has to delve <laughs> into that sewer to write an article proving that, you know, and of course, you know, on, on the History Channel, the, the best, well, their best TV shows are the ghost, ghost hunters and how aliens did everything on this planet that, that, that has anything to do with us being smart. So. I'll try and deal with a few ideas in there in reverse order. The aliens building the pyramids, I think it's worth pulling that down when you had a presidential candidate or someone seeking the Republican nominee, Ben Carson, affirming that kind of theory. So uh, I think he talked about aliens building the pyramids for grain storage or something, which disagrees with, I 
think all archaeologists. Um, but to your broader point, I think it's too easy to laugh at people. And I think it's not just like obviously wrong, but it's not helpful. And what I really wanted to try to get across here, is, and I think it's, it comes through in the humanist statements that I read out at the start, is the importance of trying to keep that open mind and treating people with respect and dignity. And the laughter puts people's defensive up. And it also misses the fact we're all inherently flawed. As Marty was talking about the psychology, we all have these internal biases. And it's very easy to become smug. And over something like aliens building the pyramids for grain storage is something we can feel smug about. But if we extend that to contemporary political debates, I think we need to make sure we're still putting checks on our smugness. So and Twitter is terrible for this, because the incentives of social media are to be smug, to be snide, to be snarky. But we lose out on nuance, and we lose out on critical thinking when that happens. In terms of the numbers of groups that are out there, it doesn't surprise me. I imagine it's kind of fun delving into some of this for the people who do it. It gives them community. That's something everyone's looking for, especially in the era of declining church attendance. And if, and honestly, it does sound kind of fun going around old haunted buildings with some like gadgets and being like, is there a ghost here? Like there's a part of, I think, the childhood me who did do some investigation into the seven wonders of the world and into some paranormal type stuff. And I was interested in UFOs, but sort of grew out of it uh, personally. I think there's interesting stuff there, and it becomes a coherent worldview. And it's only when you realize that there are contradictions within it and with everything else that you can pull away from it. But I can understand the appeal of it. And I think understanding that appeal is important to reduce that smugness and to remember not to laugh at people because people are laughing at us for getting together as an atheist group and meeting. They're like, what is it, church for atheists, huh? So I don't know what my point is. Just don't be an asshole. <laughs> OK, um, by the way, I agree with that point. Um, <laughs> and to complement what Marty said uh, about motivated reasoning, it's also not surprising that global warming um, is more accepted in BC than Alberta. I mean, there's obvious rewards for not believing in global warming in Alberta, right? Um, regarding Ogopogo, it's not dissimilar to what happened with the Bible. Uh, the story of uh, the, uh, the flood, uh, you know, there are multiple stories in different areas that have been edited into that one story. Uh, and there are other stories in the Bible as well, the Genesis and the creation story and so on. Uh, in fact, I was just watching the um, Mr. Deity um, YouTube series and one of the episodes, uh, God is very upset that he is either blamed or credited for having written the Bible. Uh, he, he, had, he said he has nothing to do with that and more importantly, he was not even allowed in the editing process. No, I got no comments on that. That's fine. I have a, I have a question, and uh, like your comment, um, we live in a society where people really are attracted to um, the paranormal. Paranormal. Do you think people get some sort of uh, like a belief or a tolerance of the paranormal? Normal provides some sort of buffer between the hard reality of um, not having the paranormal. What do you think? I think 
That's astute. I don't know that it's how prevalent it is. The polls I found were actually kind of surprising to me how low the beliefs in some of these things were. But there's an interesting interview with Dan Brown, author of The Da Vinci Code, and some of those books where he prevents a lot of, presents a lot of conspiracy theory type things in a fiction book. So I don't know if he believes in the conspiracies himself. But the current book he's working on in this interview, he talks about how it's sort of absolving him of belief in God. But he's finding that it's really hard to, for him personally, to fully become an atheist because he still thinks there's got to be something. You know, when he looks up at the stars at night, that's still, that's so inspiring and that drives something in you. And it drives something in each of us, I think, to some level that you want there to be something more. And evolution arguably favors that with our willingness or our ability to see intelligence in other people. But then we apply that pattern recognition to other animals. We'll anthropomorphize our pets sometimes more than we should, sometimes less than we should. We don't anthropomorphize pigs probably as much as we should, because I've heard they're very intelligent. But then we might over-anthropomorphize a cat, although our cats are the best, right? <laughs> uh, but then you can apply that to the universe as a whole or to other spirits and forces. And yeah. I used to belong to a UFO club. It was a UFO meetup. I finally left because I, I just couldn't handle it. It just didn't make any sense to me. And it was, it was, it was fun, but too many people really believed in that stuff. And so I was, I was interested in the humanist because, I, because I, I thought that only human hands and hearts can, can cause the evolution of our society and um, our own sensitivity to other people and, and this sort of thing. But at the same time where I'm like that, I happen to believe I have a relationship with a paranormal entity. And I know that sounds kooky, and I'd never expect any atheist or anybody to know because I don't think that it's evidenceable. Um, but anyhow, just to, just to tell my little story, I saw a ghost once, and this paranormal entity came at me like a really, really frightening, scary ghost, and I just laughed because it was no haunted spirit or anything. It was just this, I think it must be aliens or something. But anyhow, that's crazy. You have to know my background to believe anything like that. But um, anyhow, I just thought I'd say that is that I really appreciate atheists and, and the humanists and everything that they do and strive for, even though I have this kind of crazy illusion. That must have been a wonderful subject for you to research. <laughs> yeah, it's something that uh, I could have spent a lot more time. I knew some of the backgrounds of this, and it's something I could take weeks on but I have lots of other work to do. I forgot to mention that we're still pushing out the petition to add non-religion to the Human Rights Code, and I did a couple media interviews this week on that. I had Spice FM call me and just be like, we're gonna put you on the air in five minutes. I'm like, thanks, Gurpreet, but he's friendly. He's had me on a number of times, but I, he usually lets me know more than five minutes with a phone call. So I was doing that. Well, I also put together a submission to the government's justice committee on the blasphemy law and submitted that this week, basically saying, yes, you should repeal the blasphemy law because people should be free to criticize religion. And so I had like all of that work, and then I was like, oh, yeah, I also have to write this talk. So, but it was fun, yeah. Uh, I, I'm sure everybody here appreciated it. Thank you. Thanks, Ian, that was great, and I really like, did you come up with the, the, uh, the so, humanist logo that looked no, so spooky? Well, so what I did with the slides is I, Googled like some Halloween themes and there was like one that just had a jack-o'-lantern on everything and then I was like, I can do better than that. I just Googled and someone on the internet had carved the humanist logo into a pump jack-o'-lantern 
And so I just it's cut great. and pasted that yeah. in. Anyway, and I thought it was cute. Our family has its own UFO story. Um, our son, when he was about eight or nine, had an upstairs bedroom. And one evening, it was, he's probably supposed to be in bed, but it was very dark. He came running out of his bedroom, Mommy, Daddy, Mommy, Daddy, I see a UFO, I see a UFO. So we went running up into his bedroom, looked out the window, and there was one of the early um, Goodyear blimps uh, which he had never heard about or seen, and we d we hadn't heard that it was in the area. But w when we looked at it, we had seen pictures and things, so we interpreted it for what it was. But for him, this was just like it blew his mind, you know. Yeah, for him, it was unidentified, and it was yeah. flying, and it was an object. Right, so. exactly. <laughs> there are actually there's a UFO community, obviously, and they call themselves ufologists. And I think some of them actually prefer they have like different terms because. UFO has been so belittled in popular culture and gets mocked so much that I think they try, I forget what they're trying to, might be like unidentified aerial vehicle or something, but. It is a legitimate term, UFO. Yeah. yeah. I think the secret source of the scientific method is to discount personal experience to zero. Um, and I think that's the thing that sort of sets us and all people who fall into the sort of skeptical subcategory, right? Is that a lot of people, um, I mean, I think it literally it bifurcates humanity into two groups, those who believe in their own direct experience um, and those who to some degree uh, don't. Um, and I really think it's the thing that sort of like it, it, it makes the scientific method work, which is if you're prepared to discount your own direct experience in the, in, in the face of, of data, um, that opens you up to sort of uh, a realm of inquiry that makes it more likely that you're going to actually uh, get some sort of factual feedback from the universe. Um, and I think all of these things, you know, uh, I speak to a lot of people who've had uh, religious and mystical experiences, and they, they do, they, they, they're very common, right? Um, but what's most common with these experiences is um, this very, very strong belief in their, in, in, in their direct and own experience, right? Um, anyone who's tried hallucinogenics, um, will know that like, you know, you can fabricate that shit. Um, <laughs> so uh, maybe that's one of the things that also bifurcates humanity. But I, I do believe that it's, it's, it's this, this doubt in one's own direct experience that really sort of sets us all apart. Um, and where we're we willing to sort of, I'll, I'll say, defer to a higher power, which is the power of the scientific method or inquiry. I think where I disagree is set it to zero. I think without personal experience, science exists as this like scientism vacuum of doesn't know what it's doing and that's where it forgets. And some of the, one of the humanist manifestos I read talks about science tempered by human values. And so personal experience for me is the initial anecdote that drives science. So how do we do medical research? We start with case studies. Someone has a disease we don't recognize and that's personal experience. And so we use that to start to look at, all right, should we run a clinical trial? And do we need to try and treat this and go from there? When we're looking at social science, and especially, we need to start from personal experience to try to figure out what should drive our research. And we should get to that data-driven and those you know, gold standards of science. But if we totally discount personal experience, science is this meaningless tool that doesn't do anything. Or it does a lot, but 
to, to decide what we should do with it, I think that's where personal experience comes in. So I think personal experience is the first step. And I think it's important and not to discount people's stories. And that's why I'm not going to you know, comment on Kirsten's story. It's hers and hers alone. And I'm not going to convince her. So what's the point of me arguing with her? But I will listen to it and appreciate it. And thank you for sharing that. And, but if we want to approach it as a bigger method, like you're saying, that's where we sort of go, all right, well, how can we tell if her view is materially true or if a different view is? And that's where we start bringing different, that's where we bring in the scientific method, in my view. The problem with the ghost is every religion brings in their own concept of, so it's a package. You say the word ghost and they fill an entire package around what it is. The problem with that, the harm that is caused with that is the same as when they, when they convict somebody wrongly of, say, murder, now the real murderer is still out there going to do some murdering. Now with this ghost thing you alluded to a while ago, maybe there is something else. If we spend all our time trying to go for these ridiculous stories, we're not investigating what the, the truth really might be. So I did like that comment you mentioned. Okay. I think we've only got time for maybe one or two more questions. Okay, uh, one follow-up to what I said regarding the, the uh, Okopo and the Bible different stories. Uh, we sometimes, uh, humanists, when we discuss things like uh, niqab, ban, um, we say, well, the niqab is not really required in Islam, or ISIS does not really represent Islam. We are giving credit to the idea that Islam appeared in one moment in history, all of a sudden, fully... Um, um, revealed by some sort of supernatural empty entity. This happens with Judaism, with Christianity, and so on. And all these things were just, you know, legends and, and, and stories being edited over time, sometimes over centuries. So the idea when we say uh, female genital mutilation is not real Islam or niqab, that's not true. Whatever I interpret, whatever I believe my religion is, that's it. That's the religion. People in, you know, there are so many sects, so many disagreements. I have family members who, they're, they're kosher, but they don't eat in each other's houses because they don't believe the other one is kosher up to their standards. I mean, my father and my, my brother would not eat at my father's house, and we're both kosher. So um, to say that's not real Islam, which is the thing we're discussing currently, but it applies to all religions. You cannot say that. If somebody says that's Islam, and I believe... Uh, female genital mutilation or ISIS believe they say that's Islam. That, that's Islam for them, and we should respect that. So um, our attitude should not cr give credit to the idea that at some point everything was revealed because that implies a supernatural revelation. Right. I'm, since we have like three minutes left, I'm not going to get into a huge debate on the Islam and niqab ban and things like that, which we could have long, heated debates over. But I think what your point is, and what I was actually thinking about with Jake, is uh, religion and culture are not as distinct or defined as I think we sometimes like to think of them. They are sociologically and for personal, at a personal level, for many people who are religious, they're indistinguishable. You know, their religion is your culture, your culture is your religion, they go back and forth. And as far as Canadian law is concerned, your religion is what you believe it to be within, and that gives you certain rights within reason, which are not unlimited like any other right. And so appeals to texts, I think you make a, an interesting point there that 
that's giving credit to this idea of religious authority versus a religious free society, in my view, is one that respects someone's right to disagree with that religious authority. And I think that's hugely important, whether it's good or bad. And the one thing I'll say with jokes, and it comes back to Sasquatch, is there were all these different myths of, well, what are now described as Sasquatch, but it's very likely they were very different, but it was likely a Christian white man coming in with his preconceived biases of what their myths would be, reinterpreting them, mashing them all together, that destroyed the variety of those myths, whether they were true or not. And so how these stories get retold, especially when an outsider looks at them, changes them. Okay, I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, please join me in thanking Ian for a very interesting presentation. Thank you.